Okay, very good. Well, we're ready to go. Thanks for being here. We have about uh, a little less than an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, if you have questions along the way, please make them. If you want to argue, please don't. Uh, if, you, if you fear your question might be on some way slightly provocative, that's okay. We can handle that. Oh, I'm not saying I'm necessarily going and walking on that ground, but I'm just saying please don't feel like you need to sit there silent and, and if there's something, some point that you feel like you want to make or a, a question that you have, uh, then that'll be okay. But, you know, when I teach Sabbath school, when we have a combined Sabbath school lesson, I do say if you have a, if you have a comment, make it worthwhile and don't take too long and I'll decide if you've taken too long or not. So it kind of puts people on the spot. Anyway, let us begin. Oh, before the beginning, let's have an announcement. You received a blue form as you walked in. People would like that form filled out. Now, there are two ways you can fill it out. You can fill out the form, or you can go online and fill the form out there. I don't know where online. Don't know if the form says so, but you can. Huh? It does? Okay. Uh, the organizers would prefer it if you filled the form out online, but it's okay if you don't. So you understand that? Please fill it out. If you need to do it online, if you can do it online, grand. If you just fill out the form, leave it on your seat when you're done, that's okay too. I think what we're talking about is somewhat important. I think it's the crux of the Christian experience, as a matter of fact. So um, how we do it justice, who knows? But we'll endeavor to do so and uh, hope that we don't leave out too many important aspects of this because this, frankly, is an all-encompassing subject. Let us pray and expect that God will speak to us. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in a very real way. We need your blessing. We're discussing something of eternal importance, and we are merely human. Your thoughts are as high above ours as the, heaven, the heavens are above the earth. So would you be especially merciful to us, uh, lead us by your spirit, minister to our hearts, bless the speaker that he might represent your will, and I pray we'll all be blessed in Jesus' name, amen. Were you in the main auditorium last night? Yeah. Were you cold? Yeah. You told somebody, didn't you? You complained because your complaints have been heard. Are you cold now? Are you slightly too warm? Yeah, all right. You're going to drive these people mad. Now it's too warm. I was walking in our neighborhood, I don't know, a couple of months ago maybe, close to our house. We live at the end of a little cul-de-sac. And I was walking to our house, uh, this neighbor here, that neighbor there, and us. And as I was by this neighbor's house, walking up the street, I heard a on the ground next to me. Ordinarily, it's the sort of thing you would not notice or hear and not care about. It wasn't an explosion. It wasn't a bang. It wasn't a clatter. Nothing smashed or crashed. It was a little thud. Just, just something you'd barely notice. But being a curious fellow, and I am, I stopped and I thought, what was that? And then I looked. Now, next to me, over here, was a very large tree, very large, tall tree. So I looked down, and, you know, the streets are typically black and not hard to notice something, or not hard to see something unless it, it, it stands out if it's the right color. 
But I looked down and saw an odd-looking thing. I didn't know what it was. It was a, wasn't a bug, but it was a bug kind of thing of some kind. I looked down, and it was, it was standing upwards, even though it did not have legs, at least not that were discernible. It had a, a, a head of some kind, an ending of some kind, and on it, as though they had been drawn or painted, two eyes. They weren't eyes, but they were eye-looking things on this bug-looking thing. I don't know what it was. And I was fascinated by it. It had suddenly a couple of orange antenna sticking up. And I got close to it, and, and it started to rock backwards and forwards, side to side. It's a little brown thing, a little fat little thing, about this, kind of like the size of my thumb. On the end, eyes, not real eyes, but eye-like things, antenna, and it was rocking backwards and forwards like this. It was a bit weird, frankly. And then the rocking stopped, and then I, I dared to touch it, not knowing what it was. And then it rocked again, and so I got my phone out and took a photograph, and I thought my wife Melissa would be fascinated by this, and so I videoed it for a while, maybe about 40 seconds, this odd-looking thing on the road rocking backwards and forwards. And I, I, I went close to home, and so I went home, and I pulled my phone out. I said, hey, honey, look at this. This is, this, what is this, do you think? And Melissa says, wow, that is a fascinating thing. She said, it looks like, you know, a, a caterpillar kind of a thing that might turn into something. And I said, well, there are, there are no legs. Uh, and she said, I, 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 wonder, I wonder if it's a lunar moth, having seen these big eyes on it. And uh, I said, well, I don't know. She said, where is it? Out there. So she dashed out there, and uh, it was not there. It was gone. Oh, maybe a bird got it or something, I don't know. But then we, we turned around, and about I don't know, 15 or 20 feet away, this little guy was shuffling along, kind of like an inchworm might, but quite quickly, uh, across the street, I don't know where he was going, or if, if it knew he, she, where it was going, I don't know. It was going somewhere, and it seemed to be quite intent on getting there. So Melissa, seeing it, figured out that this was some little creature in a developmental stage. She ran back to the house, grabbed a plastic container of some kind, ran out, and scooped it up. What we're going to do next with this thing, I have no idea in the world. Melissa left it to one side. She did some research, and she figured out that this was an eastern tiger swallowtail, but in thumb form, you know? It was a caterpillar, even though it didn't have legs as such, uh, and it was brown, meaning it was like in the, it was getting along there in the stages of development. Next step, we learned later, it would become a chrysalis, a pupa. That's the next thing. So we found an old fish tank that hadn't been used in forever, and Melissa went out searching and, and, and harvesting weeds. Uh, Queen Anne's lace, evidently, this is what it likes. Queen Anne's lace attracts ticks like nobody's business. When my son walked in, he said, Ah, oh, who's, who's trying to attract ticks into the house? It was Melissa who was, who was stuffing stuff in this terrarium-looking thing to make a home for the weak creature. So in it went, 
It attached itself to a little branch type thing, crawled up there and then stopped. And we honestly didn't think too much about it. I guess once or twice we walked by and looked and it didn't look good. And, and, and Melissa even said to me a week or two, I don't know, later, I think it's dead. I think we killed it. Well, I don't think we killed it. I, I, think, it, I think the jump out of the tree might have had something to do with it. And <laughs> did. Until, until I was away speaking at a camp meeting or something and I get a text, you'll never, you'll never believe this. Take a look at this. And there was a video. What had happened was out they came into the kitchen that morning and in the terrarium was no longer a chrysalis but a beautiful yellow swallowtail butterfly with its arms outstretched, I guess getting ready to go. And so they, they Shannon, my daughter, and Melissa took the container outside and she said, I don't want to touch it. How do you, how do you get it out of there? She was coaxing it out. Come on. Time to go. She did her best. And while they were filming this thing, next moment, it took off. It, it flew to the heavens. No longer a brown blob on a street, but now a magnificent marvel of, well, frankly, it was a marvel of creation at every stage. No, I don't want to digress, but I will. You, you, you might you might could hear this and say, isn't evolution a marvelous thing? It takes a lot of faith to believe that there was a process that caused that to evolve in the way it must have. Instead, we believe in the God of creation and the God who was able to take something and, if you'll allow me to put it this way, remake it. Not so much recreate it, but the word, I guess, would be transform it. No longer a peculiar looking thing, looking up at me with its orange antenna, rocking backwards and forwards, kind of like a, a polar bear does after it's been in a small cage at a zoo for far too long, rocking backwards and forwards, now flying to the heavens, beautifying the world. It's going to be a blessing. It will have by now been a blessing to, I would expect, many people who saw that on, its, on their butterfly bush or perching on a flower of some kind, looked and said, what an amazing thing. If they'd seen it before, they might have said, oh, that's weird. But if you saw it later rather than sooner, you would have said, an absolute thing of beauty. It had undergone a complete change, a transformation. Planet Earth underwent a transformation. It was created in absolute perfection, but didn't take long, and sin entered the world, and then death entered the world. And I wonder what it would be like to watch a time lapse of planet Earth changing over those few weeks or months or even years since sin entered the world. Suddenly things would die, suddenly things would decay, suddenly uh, uh, creatures would be at war and at odds with each other, suddenly human beings would start acting the same thing. It was a transformation, a downward spiral. But God, perceiving what had happened and understanding what had taken place, stepped into the mix and he spoke to the serpent and told the serpent that he would put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's seed and her seed. The devil was told that he, the devil, would be permitted to bruise Christ's foot, but that Jesus would crush his head. And for why? 
The Bible says that Jesus came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. We are told in that very famous Bible verse that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But I wonder what that believing looks like in the life of a legitimate, genuine believer in Jesus. There's a wonderful verse in 1 John chapter 1 which tells us that if you confess your sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And the verse doesn't end there. It might. If it did, that would be wonderful. Imagine carrying around a, around a weight of sin, being condemned for sin. Sin being the transgression of the law. And the verse said, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. Period. That would be great news. But God has even better news. The verse goes on to say, and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You see, when you read the end of the story, and the Bible is a fascinating book, you know, it's the sad tale of sin and its cause and its effects, but also the banishment of sin and the destruction of sin and the recreation of the human family. What we read in the book of Revelation, one of the very last verses, it says, blessed are they that do his commandments. That's a whale of a statement. Revelation 14 verse 12 at the end of the three angels' messages. Here is the patience of the saints, the saved, the redeemed ones. Here are they that do what? Keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So what we see in God's economy, a race of rebels is restored to the place where the universe can look on and hear God say, here are they that actually keep the commandments of God. These people have been restored and transformed. And then we look in Revelation 18. I wonder if you would turn there for me. I ask people from time to time, where are you in the Bible? Oh, you mean where are, where's the human family? What part of human history? No, no, no. Find me a snapshot in the Bible, one in which I can see you, your face in the crowd. Well, I'll show you one of those places. Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1. This is where God sees you in the group picture in the Bible. Revelation 18 verse 1. After these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power and the earth was lightened, illuminated with his glory. Here we read that the glory of God, of Jesus himself, is seen in the world. And is seen how? Not on a picture postcard, that's not what he's talking about. Not a video or a highlight reel, not that. But the character of Jesus is seen, witnessed, as it is demonstrated, lived out, in the lives of God's people to the extent that the earth is going to be lit up with a manifestation of the glory or the character of Jesus. And how is that seen? Not if you've, you, you've been in Las Vegas and on top of the, is it the Luxor, this hotel, there's a bright light shining up into the sky. That's not what the Bible is speaking about here. This is speaking about the light, Jesus, the light of the world seen in your life in your life. So this isn't anything to brag about. We don't look in the mirror and say, what a great day today. I'm looking so much like Jesus. Where we get, 
when we get to that place, we're about as far from Jesus as we possibly could be. But this is important on a variety of levels. One, we want God to be glorified. Two, we want to be all that heaven can enable us to be. And three, we want to be transformed. You read in Romans chapter 12, I'll turn there and you might as well. We'll look at a few different verses today. Romans chapter 12 and starting in verse 1. Listen to this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, beseech you. Now, he's appealing to the people. I am appealing, requesting of you. I'm really, I'm really drawing on you here. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now watch the wording. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now you've heard that verse a thousand times. I'm sure you've thought about it. Let's think about it again. That you present your bodies. I'm appealing to you. I'm not just throwing this out there. This isn't a casual mention. This isn't isn't an option. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. When the sacrifices were offered in the Hebrew economy, what was offered? They'd bring bring an animal, maybe a goat, it may be a dove, it may be a lamb. They would bring that thing and everything, virtually, would be placed on the altar and offering to God. Everything. The whole thing given to God. And then depending on the sacrifice, of course, it'd be burned up. Burned up so that nothing is left. So if we're reading this correctly, Paul is saying... I am appealing to you by the mercies of God that what you do is present yourself just like a burnt offering of old. You are a sacrifice, but you're alive. He drew the distinction. Of course, he's not seeing you on a a stone altar bound and carved open. But he is saying, I want you to be a living sacrifice. Now, Maybe we shouldn't spend too long on this, but take, take just a, a, a moment and look back over your last minute or hour or day or week or month or year and ask yourself how much like a living sacrifice your life has been. I don't ask that to condemn you in any way. Uh, I ask that of myself. What would it look like? What would it look like if we were living sacrifices? This is radical. This is extreme. This would be labeled fanatical, even in colleges and seminaries. This is being a hundred percent all in for God. But he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, and then he says this, this is your reasonable service it's reasonable to do what he's suggesting it's rational it is a rational thing for you to give your life to the to the great extent that you would be a living embodiment of what a sacrifice is friend this is extreme christianity you could say that, and you could also say, no, no, wait a minute. 
this is Christianity. This is all Christianity is, right? Unless you want to be a cultural Christian or a once-a-week Christian or a whatever. That's not really Christianity. That's something else. Paul says it's rational, reasonable, to be so far in with God that your life is a sacrifice to God, but, but played out uh, in a living way. And so he then gives instruction, counsel rather. He says, and don't be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he goes on and says that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't be conformed to the world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what does that look like? Not being conformed to the world. Or maybe we say, what does it look like being conformed to the world? You probably don't have to look too far to find that. And I want to say this too. I'll try to be careful in how I say this. I think we want to address or approach rather a subject like this with a modicum of caution and humility. Because it's possible to stretch things so far you stretch them beyond breaking point. I, I, I think I'll just say that for now. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renew of your mind. Do, do you think that we here are subject to a conforming process that's going on in the world right now? Think there's anyone immune? No. We're all subject to that. And he says, don't be conformed to the world. Sin in this world is now 6,000 years old. The devil is at the top of his game. He's really good at what he does. And we were told a couple of thousand years ago that the devil is wroth, angry with the woman, the church, and has gone to make war with the remnant of her seed, and that would be us. Make war. So, so we're all on the battlefield, we're all in the crosshairs, and around us are the evidences of warfare every single place you look. We're at war. Devil has you in his sights, knows how to take you down. He is after you. You are not immune. Keeping that in mind, by the way, should uh, cause us to be somewhat gracious towards those in our midst who stumble and fall. Yeah? Because the devil is picking them off. And we, we really ought to be better than being critical. We, we, we really ought to be better than being critical about leaders. Let, let me pause there. Let me, let me tramp on, trample on that soil for a moment and pack it down. The easiest thing in the world is to criticize church leaders. A, we have a lot of them. And every last one of them is human. And it's the dumbest thing in the world to stand on a soapbox and, and mouth off about faulty leaders. Unless, of course, you want to be very specific and be constructive in your criticism. Even then, you could probably find a better way of going about what you're trying to accomplish. Leaders are human. They are faulty. They get tired and hungry and hangry and everything else. They don't know everything. They make mistakes. And of course, there are going to be some bad ones. 
There are going to be people who find themselves in leadership positions who probably shouldn't be in leadership positions. And they are subject to pressures that until you've been there, you just can't imagine. And that it's coming from every angle. I'm not excusing them. I'm not excusing them. I'm endeavoring to understand the situation. I just want to appeal to the church to be constructive and not destructive. And to remember, too, that leaders are human beings. And when they, I don't know if they ever do, but if they read some of the ugly stuff that is occasionally written about them online, I don't imagine it feels good. Their wives or their husbands probably don't feel good. Imagine someone's mother reading scathing, biting criticism of them. Uh, somebody telling the world that their son or daughter is a tool of the devil and an agent of Satan and an unfaithful Adventist. We need to be better than that, don't we? Pray for leaders. Pray for leaders. How did I get there? I can't remember, but I got there. We don't want to be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so think about the world in which we live. There are immense and immensely powerful forces that are molding society and uh, uh, impacting society. And I mention these, not critically, but just merely to mention some of the forces. We saw what kicked off in the United States after the death of George Floyd. A huge, huge thing. And, and I'm not here to talk about rights and wrongs or ask you where you stand on that. That's not my business and it wouldn't be helpful. But I bet you it impacted you. It may have made you angry. It may have made you very angry. So here's my question. How did that help your Christian experience? How did you respond to that so that the external stimuli of societal movements and forces nudged you closer to Jesus and didn't push you further away from Jesus? You see what I'm asking? You know, COVID really impacted the church. I've spoken to people even here. How's it going? How's, how's your congregation? Oh, we haven't recovered from COVID. I don't think we ever will. I'm hearing that in many, many, many places. How are the numbers? Well, you know, we took a hit. Some people have come back, but all these, year, all these two years later, we're still not anywhere near 100%. The fallout from this is going to continue for some time. But... Perhaps even worse is what happened in board meetings and uh, in church foyers and elders meetings where, where, where people, look, again, wherever you stand on the issue is not my point. What we had was a global health crisis. No, don't give me a, ah, was a manufactured. That's not the point. However it came to us, it was a global health crisis. There were people who were afraid um, with pretty good reason because a whole bunch of them died. And so congregations were trying to figure out, how do we get through this? And so we figured it out the way Adventists do best, by arguing and fighting. You know that Adventists don't disagree well. We don't typically just let things slide, because we've been conditioned that everything is a matter of truth and error, right and wrong, life and death. And so this... Oh, it's a matter of truth and righteousness. Nah, man, I think there's a middle ground. I think there's a way to agree to disagree. I think there's a way to accommodate and still love. I think there's a way to be in the minority and not win the vote and still be a Christian. I, I say this to say this. The Bible is talking about transformation, and COVID probably revealed a dark underbelly in the hearts and souls of many of us. I wonder what it exposed in our hearts and minds and attitudes and demeanors. 
You might have won the fight. Your vote might have carried the day. But did you manifest the character of Jesus in your interactions with others? God allowed this thing for a variety of reasons, and one of them was so that we could look in the mirror and say, oh, so that's what I'm really like. There are many things like this. The economy. I mean, the good news is inflation's running at 10.5%. The bad news is I haven't been able to find a single thing that increased in price by 10.5%. Where I go, what I buy, it's all up by 20, 30, 50, or 100. So the economy is going mad. Is that making you angry? Is it, is it demonstrating to the world that you're just an activist, really, and, and, and not a Christian? Uh, the proxy war in Ukraine. I mean, what a, what a mess that is. Uh, but, but what's it doing to your character? Oh, by now, probably not much with kind of... Kind of forgot all about it. It's not in our backyard. Uh, people are dying. It's an awful state of affairs. And the question I'm asking is, how do you react to that? What's it bringing out of you? The political process. What a mess. What a mess. Washington, D.C. is a freak show. It's bizarre. It's never been like this. What are we going to do about it? Uh, how are we going to react to it? That's the question. How are we going to react to that? And then we see the, the moral developments in the country right now. I'll never forget doing an evangelistic meeting and two men came into the, into the hall at the church and they were as gay as gay could be. How do I know? They couldn't have been gayer if they held up big signs saying, we are gay. They were just the gayest looking guys ever. That's not an insult to say that. You understand what I mean? Some guys, you go, wow, it's a really gay guy right there. What's interesting about it is they attended night one and night two and night three and night four. I visited, them to get, I visited with them in their home after about 10th or 12th presentation. One of them was the son of a Baptist minister. You know, I knew there was no way they would ever become members of the Seventh-day Adventist church when one of the church members pulled me aside and said, hey, pastor... Those two, <clears throat> those, those, those guys, you know the ones I'm talking about? You know the ones I'm talking about? Are they thinking, are they thinking, what do you think? And I thought it doesn't really matter, does it? Because you don't love them. It doesn't really matter. They're never going to find a home here. They'll never be welcome here. They'll never be accepted here. And what somebody is saying is, well, how can you accept homosexuals in the church? And, and that's my point. You see how devoid of Christian grace some people are? Haven't figured out how to... You've got prideful people and angry people. You've got adulterers in your church. And when the head elder ran off with that other woman, you just shrugged. No one even cared. But gay, and that's a bridge too far. You can't be loving. No, 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 no. Don't, don't stretch this too far. Is he saying... No. I'm not saying. I'm saying that in all things we are to demonstrate the character of Jesus. And if a flaming homosexual wants to attend my church, not that I've ever had a church, but you understand what I mean, wants to attend the church that I go to or work at, then we're going to figure out a way that that person can, can, can worship and find acceptance and love and 
transformation. Isn't that right? Because don't we believe that God can transform anyone, anyhow, anyway? You better. Book Prophets and Kings said that Solomon plunged so deep into immorality that he became effeminate. You know what she is saying there. But he repented and, and got his life turned around and wrote Ecclesiastes, which is really the story of his life and uh, his letter of repentance. So there is a transforming, a conforming process going on in the world. You know, I have, I have, oh no, I can't go there because it's being recorded, but you'll have people who will say, you'll have people who, who are impacted by some of these very things that we've spoken about, and their reaction is one of, hey, anything goes. Well, no, no, Jesus didn't die so that anything can go. He died so that any sinner can be redeemed, so that any sinner can be saved, so that any sinner can be transformed but not anything goes. We don't have to, you know, sin is still sin. And the rush to judgment has been replaced by a rush to tolerance. You know what I mean? Somewhere there's a middle ground, and I don't know that we need to do the emoji thing and go like that, but I do think, you know the emoji. I do think that Jesus is able to accept and love and transform. What kind of Savior would he be and who in the world would need the kind of Savior who would welcome you as you are and then leave you as you are? I've met a lot of sinners in my time and I've never met one who did not want to not be a sinner. Wait. A, no, wait a minute. I've met plenty like those. But it is often the case that genuine people want to experience transformation in their heart. And so, is it possible? Come on, of course it is. Second Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a, tell me, new creature. All things are what, tell me? And behold, all things are become new. There we go. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we read this. We want to understand the how of transformation. Because there's something I believe people wrestle with. I had somebody walk up to me in this building, Mm, five or six or seven years ago, I don't know. And what was interesting, somebody else come to me in a different building telling me exactly the same thing. Pastor, I don't think I'm going to go to heaven. Oh, why is that? I don't think I can be saved. Tell me why. Well, because I don't think I can be perfect. And I've got to be perfect before I can be saved. I'll double back around to that. I said to this individual, I hope you will just forget all about that. I hope you'll just forget all about that. And then had a conversation that went somewhat along the lines of where we're going to go over the next 30 minutes. What happens in many people's lives is they believe in transformation. They believe it. Sinners should be forgiven of their sins. Sinners should quit sinning. Should quit sinning. Uh, everybody knows, no, yes, everybody knows that. Not everybody believes that. But what happens is this. You dive into a relationship with Jesus. You gladly accept salvation. You walk in Christ. Things are good. And boom, down you go. You say, oh, wait a minute. Let's try that again. And you stumble again. Let's try that again. And you stumble again. And after a while, you say, why bother? I just can't do this. Which is true. You just can't do this. 
100% true. Now, the fellow did have a point. I've asked congregations this. It's a trick question, so don't answer it. I've said, is it true that you have to be perfect in order to be saved? What's the answer? Of course the answer is yes. Of course the answer is yes. What happens is this. A sinner comes to Jesus and she gives Jesus her sins. What does he give her? His righteousness. Describe that righteousness for me. Perfect righteousness. Is there a single, single person, a single exception, a single person who's going to get into heaven without the righteousness of Christ? Is it a prerequisite? Is it perfect righteousness? And perfection is a prerequisite for everlasting life. Correct? Has to be correct. So we understand that our perfection is found in Jesus, but, but now you're going to, yeah, but, but doesn't my life have to change? Okay, let's carry on with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6 says, For God... See, there's nothing, I think, more miserable than sitting in church and your mind is in the gutter or, or, or kneeling down to pray and wanting it to be over so that you can whatever. There can't be anything worse than, than, than sneaking home after, after a, a, an illicit sexual encounter hoping that your spouse doesn't wake up as you slide into bed beside him or her. And I say that because I've had people who tell me this is the very, the very way their lives played out. It's got to be hell to live like that. And then sit beside your, the one you said, I do and I will forever, amen. And be sitting by that person in church. You see? It's got to be awful. It's got to be awful to have a temper that you can't control. It's got to be awful to, to, to say foul words and you don't want to, but you do. Well, we know how awful it is. You know why? Because Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death or the body of this death? It's awful, all right? It's condemnatory. It's crushing. And far too many of us are living with that and not, experience, not experiencing freedom and victory and transformation. We've been conformed. We live in a world that celebrates sin and promotes sin and rewards sinful behavior and virtually forces people down the road into sin. It takes some backbone, uh, actually some faith, to be the exception to that rule. And so we're going to read God's description, His prescription, if you like, for transformation so we don't need to be conformed to this world. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, that means God is the what? He is the Creator hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. He's talking about our, 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 our faulty, failing bodies and minds. Earthen vessels. We have this treasure, but in earthen vessels. But that's all right, he says. We have it that way so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You, you, you see, you don't want to get to the end of the day and celebrate how good you were that day. I had a guy say to me, just one more sin, that's only, there's only one more sin. If I can put that out of my life, I'm good. I said, yeah, no, you have advanced educational degrees and how can you be that stupid to say something like that? Educated person, just one more sin. Once I get past this one? Well, there was another sin. He's a liar as well. <laughs> Two... 
You want the excellency of the power to be of God and not of you. This is the work of God. Colossians 1 and verse 27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Christ in you. By the way, go to the ABC. There's a really good book called The Hope of Glory. It's outstanding. You never read a book like it. Can't remember who wrote it. It's a, it's a devotional book. It's this year's devotional book from Pacific Press. You want, it, oh, you serious, the hope of glory. You know, you know, I said earlier, if you have a d- divisive comments to make, remember what I said? I knew that woman was going to give me trouble right from the beginning. You want the excellency of the power to be of God and not of you. You see, the work of transformation is God's work. He doesn't do it without your will. He doesn't do it without your cooperation. He doesn't. But He does the work as you allow Him to do the work. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Uh, Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. And there's a key word in that verse, that verse that I just breezed through. First word, always. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Now some of us do that on a part-time basis. Hit or miss. We yield to Jesus in the moment, but not for time. And Christianity is that process whereby we learn to surrender more and more and more and more to Jesus. We decrease so that he increases. Now, at the same time, we must have a lack of tolerance for certain sins. Certain sins. For sin. We must be able to look ourselves in the eye and say, that must change. Must. Now, I understand it's not easy because you have inherited certain tendencies to evil. Your dad was a certain way, you're a certain way. Your mother was a certain way, you're like that. It's, it's in you. You inherited that. Doesn't mean you have to be like that. Doesn't mean you have to be like that. I was born this way. Yes, you were born this way, but you may be reborn. Reborn. John chapter 3. Except a person is born again. So I understand it's a struggle. It's a battle and a march. Of course it is. Uh, We'll read a quote from Steps to Christ, certainly, that that, uh, acknowledges that. And then, and then you have different cultural perspectives, certain cultural perspectives. And then you've got family dynamics. And then you've got your lifestyle, the way you were raised, the things you were exposed to, the things that were inflicted on you, things that you had no control over. And you may just be dysfunctional and broken or bent or warped or, or tweaked a certain way. And this is why the Bible says, always bearing about in the body. Christianity is not for wimps. Uh, Paul said, not Paul, Jesus said, strive to enter in at the straight gate. He's not talking about salvation by works, but he's recognizing that there are burdens that we carry around in this world. And it's not a walk on easy street. Faith is, is is a messy business. And it's a growing business. Same book. Let's see what else Paul said. Now, I'll skip those two verses 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3. 
Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. See, you're going to get angry about what's going on in Washington, D.C., and you think your vote is going to change something. It isn't. Not saying you shouldn't vote, but I am saying you shouldn't hope for change because it's just a broken system run by broken people. So you may get uh, upset or, 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 or bothered, or you might, you might decide that you're going to take care of that child trafficking ring that's being carried out in the basement of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. Grab your gun and drive from Salisbury, North Carolina, all the way to D.C. and get in there and go, oh, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The best weapons we have are prayer and faith. The Word of God. Praise. You remember that time the armies of Jehoshaphat went into battle? First went the singers, praising God. They won without having to fire a shot. These are the weapons of our warfare, not carnal weapons. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Ooh, I wonder how big your faith is. What are the strongholds in your life? The Bible says that you have weapons that are so mighty, they can pull down those strongholds. Pull them down. Whatever those, I'm not saying those weaknesses are, but those failings are. Wherever you stumble and trip and, and, and you're being more and more conformed to the world, and in this area of your life not transformed at all, Bible says you have weapons that are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And I remember reading this verse when I was a brand new Christian and thinking to myself, I can never do this. Casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity, what's the next word? Every. Every thought to the obedience of Christ. Every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now I want to say this. And this is what discourages people like the two young men who came to talk to me, one in this building and one in Nebraska. Because you accept Jesus today and discover tomorrow that not every thought is in obedience to Christ, you may become discouraged. I think you should be disappointed, not discouraged. And a year from now, same deal. But what about 50 years 60 years, same failings, same issues, same bitterness, same anger, same brokenness. That can get really discouraging. So rather than lie to you and tell you that once you become a Christian, you, you suddenly, it, you just relax into your white fluffy cloud, carried along by the breeze. That's a lie. That's just not the reality. What I do want to tell you is this, and here's what we've got to understand. We as a church don't, I, I, I think I'm right in saying this, we don't really internalize this very well. Christianity is a growth process. It's a growth process. Now, it's not like the Olympic Games or the World Track and Field Championships that were just held. You train and train and train and train and train and train. Bend your life in a hundred different directions and then you run or climb or whatever it is, vault or throw and you're the best and you win the gold medal. Victory. I made it. That's not Christianity. Christianity is you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He gives you the gold medal. 
right then. And now you walk with Jesus. Just hang on to that medal. Again, it's not possible for me to cover every objection. It's just not. So please don't stretch my remarks to some ridiculous place. And then you grow with Jesus. You grow. The the baby is born. The baby is born as a, a perfect human being. But babies stink and they make noises and they make stinking noises. But they're perfect little creatures. What do they have to do? Grow. You feed them and you love them and they grow. At six months old, at six years old, not so much. Christianity is a growing thing. You come to Jesus and you receive the gift of salvation. Now grow. So, so, so we want to grow. And if we want to experience that transformation that God wants f- from us, we've got to understand what we need to do to grow. I have a, I have a terrible garden. I have no real garden spot where, where I live. And next year may be different. But we've managed to plant some stuff in most unlikely places. And I have some tomato plants that are just growing up and reaching the sky. And then I got another one. It's like a wee pygmy. Because it's growing in a shadow. And it gets very little sun. I thought, eh, why not? I like to watch it grow. I just put it there and see what happens. And maybe we get something from it. You want to put yourself in the place where you can grow. Get into the sun. Make sure you're reading. Be sure to pray. Share your faith. Have faith in God. You've got to give yourself the opportunity to grow. But Christianity is a growing experience. And we cast down imaginations into every high thing. I can tell you, that these years after I first read that verse, I, I don't think I'm serving only aces. I think that's fair to say that. But I can promise you I've grown. My faith in Jesus has grown. My walk with God has become stronger. I'm growing. So focus on the growing. Have a zero tolerance policy for sin. And when you fall, don't stay down. Jesus will not let go of you. I wanted to talk about trials, and I think I will. I think I will. Yeah, we'll, we'll make the time for this. One of the things that people f- frequently don't choose to factor in when they think of spiritual growth is trials. You know, before Jesus comes back, there's going to be a, a, a very strong, a very intense refining process that the human family is going to be subject to. Uh, If you look at the way God dealt with Israel, you will understand that he permitted trials for their glory, for their betterment, for his glory, and for their purification. I'm going to read to you from Psalm 78, 32 and on. For all this they sinned still and believed not for his wondrous works. Therefore, their days did he consume in vanity and their years in trouble. They did this, he did that. And then the psalmist wrote, When he slew them, then they sought him. And they returned and inquired after, early after God. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, God, I mean... He didn't exactly lower the boom. 
He said, you can't stay in the Garden of Eden. Things are going to get tough now. Working is going to be more difficult, childbirth and so forth. But it's not like he isolated them on an island in the middle of an ocean. That didn't happen. As God appealed to his people and appealed to his people, he had to take stronger and more drastic measures in an attempt to help them to see their hopeless situation without leaning upon God. When he slew them, then they sought him and returned and inquired early after God. In another place, God said, For I wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. And then he wrote, Because your sins have increased, I've done these things to you. And then he said, For I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord. You look at the way he dealt with Israel of old, and things were severe at it for a time. Frequently severe. Why? So they would return to him. And this is why God allows trials in our lives. Now, don't, 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 don't. Again, you've got to listen with a little salt here. Uh, when the tough things happen in our lives, so often they bump people right out of faith in God. Instead, what God is saying is, if you just lean on me, you'd find strength here. You'd find solace and comfort and assurance and growth. Now understand, somebody dies, you lose a limb, you lose your home, or you lose your money, your spouse runs off for somebody else. None of that's easy. Brutal. But God is saying, if you'll allow me to walk you through that dark valley, then you'll see that your walk with me will become sweeter and stronger and your, your dependence upon me will grow and grow and grow and we'll start to lose our hold on the things of this world, those things that bind us as they do. Let me read to you. Because God wants us to experience transformation. We must. The 144,000, were we to read about them, we would discover that God's name is written in their foreheads. Tell me what that means. God's character is what? Reformed in their lives. Is that correct? That's what's happening to the 144,000. We want to have that. And so God says, through the servant of the Lord, many are inquiring, how am I to make the surrender of myself to God? I wonder when the last time was you prayed to God and said, Lord, I surrender my life to you. Maybe it was this morning. Good. Maybe it was yesterday. Okay, you forgot this morning. Now, a couple of days ago, you've been busy. But if it was more than a couple of days ago, I don't have an excuse for you. I know what that was. No one's that busy. When did you last say, God, here's my life. It's all yours. I want your will to be done. I want to speak your words. I want to live your way. I want you to take all the idols away, whatever they might be. I want Jesus to be seen in my life. My heart is yours. My life is yours. I lay it right down at your feet. That's the surrender that we need to make on a daily basis. In fact, we could make it more than once a day. It's imperative. See, sometimes we bump our way through life. It's, it's, it's defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat, but we're not even covering the basics. 
And the basics would be, take my heart for I cannot give it. It is your property. Keep it pure for I cannot keep it for you. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of your love can flow through my soul. Pray that prayer. Tell God you are serious about His will being done in your life because you wish to experience transformation, preparation for heaven. You want God to be glorified in your life. And by the way, I wouldn't spend too much time waiting to get to the place where you no longer ever make another mistake. You are human. Mistakes happen. Many are inquiring, how am I to make the surrender of myself to God? Someone's going to take issue with what I just said, and I don't blame you. You desire to give yourself to Him, but you are weak in moral power, in slavery to doubt, and controlled by the habits of your life and sin. Anybody can relate to that? You can relate to that. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. You cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens your confidence in your own sincerity and causes you to feel that God cannot accept you. And that's likely the experience that all of us have had at one time or another. All of us. Don't change the fact, though, the Bible is telling us we must be transformed. So, you need not despair. What you need to understand is the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. Nine words you should never forget. The power of choice God has given to men, it is theirs to exercise. You cannot change your heart. You cannot of yourself give to God its affections, but you can choose to serve Him. You can give Him your will. He will then work in you to will and to do according to His good pleasure. That's Philippians 2 and verse 13. Thus, your whole nature will be brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ. Your affections will be centered upon Him and your thoughts will be in harmony with them. And someone's saying, I tried that and I failed. Somewhere Ellen White said, the hardest battle that we ever have to fight is the battle against self. I've said this a million times. If you've heard me speak more than once, you've probably heard me say this. I remember hearing a fellow talk once about the, the, the battle against self and how there was some food on the table and he wanted to take the last piece of pizza or whatever it was and his son reached for it and so he's like, ah, I'm going to take that thing for it. No, Self got the victory over self. All right, that's fine. Not in my house, man. My son grabs the last piece of whatever. Hey, 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 hey. Hey. Are there any adults at the table, son? Have you offered it to them? What are you waiting for? Teaching moments. I'll take it too. Teach him. <laughs> if, if for you, that's the battle against self you're fighting, then that's okay, that's fine. But I think Christians are fighting, most Christians are fighting a much more insidious battle and a harder battle. It's the battle that says, I failed again, so why bother? Or the battle that said, I've tried and I can't do it, so I just won't do it. I will accept that I can't change. 
or I've, I've, I've sinned so badly God could never forgive me. You know what that is, don't you? That's selfishness. That's selfishness. That's absolute, utter self-centeredness. I'll tell you why. Because if you were to look up, look up. Now imagine you were there that day that Stephen looked up and you saw what he saw. What would you see? You'd see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And what's Jesus doing at the right hand of the Father? Interceding. What's he saying? My blood, my blood. So what you're going to do is say, oh, I've, I've, I've sinned too badly, forgetting that there is a Jesus in heaven interceding for you. Your problem is you are self-centered. You're looking at yourself rather than looking at Jesus. Remember when the snakes got in the camp and bit all the Israelites? God told them to look at what? Look at the serpent, an emblem representing Jesus. Don't look at each other. Don't look at your bite marks. Don't look at your wounds. Look at Jesus. And that's what God wants us to do today. Look away from your bad temper and look to Jesus. Look away from your anger. Look away from your lust. Look away from your whatever it might be and look to Jesus. Because by beholding, we become changed. And this is a process. What did somebody once say? Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Growth continues. Growth continues. But you've got to be resolute, a little bit stubborn. I will look to Jesus, and I will look again, and I will look again, and I will keep looking, and I will keep looking, and I will keep looking, because you have a choice. If you don't look to Jesus, where, where would you be looking? Yeah, self. Nowhere good. Desires, oh, where were we? I wonder where, where, did I, wonder where I left off here. But if I repeat something, it's all okay, because it's inspired, so that's all right. You can choose to serve him. You can, yeah, work and you're willing to do it. Your affections will be centered upon him. Your thoughts will be in harmony with him. And here we go. Desires for goodness and holiness are right as far as they go. But if you stop here, they will avail nothing. Many will be lost while hoping and desiring to be Christians. They do not come to the point of yielding the will to God. They do not now choose to be Christians. That word yield, powerful in the work of transformation. Through the right exercise of the will, an entire change may be made in your life. By yielding up your will to God, you ally yourself with the power that is above all principalities and powers. You will have strength from above to hold you steadfast. And thus, through constant surrender to God, you will be enabled to live the new life, even the life of faith. Through constant surrender to God. You ally yourself with a power that is above all principalities and powers. That's the power of God. In the beginning, God, he spoke to the darkness and light came out of the darkness. That's power. And faith appropriates that power. Surrendering to God brings into your life that power. Now, there's a reason you stumble along the way. It's because you, you wouldn't give a two-year-old the keys to a great big truck. You wouldn't do that. Great truck, just not fit for a two-year-old. You want something commensurate to the two-year-old's state in life. That two-year-old is going to sit on a plastic thing that he or she pushes around on the kitchen floor and then is going to graduate to a tricycle and then a bicycle, maybe with training wheels, but advice to parents are a waste of time. Don't forget the training wheels, awful things. 
and then something bigger, and then before long driving your car, and you're paying for the gas. You grow, you even grow in the way you cooperate with the power of God. There's a passage that was read last night, and I love it. I'm going to read it now. All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, give me another word for consent. Surrender. Surrender. Give me another one. Yield. Yield. One more. Agree. I'll give it to you. If we consent, surrender, yield, agree, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so he will. Did you get that? He will. He will so blend our hearts and minds into conformity with his will, he will, that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. Come on. That's powerful. You can obey God and it comes naturally. Wow. The will, refined and sanctified, will find its highest delight doing His service. When we know God as it is our privilege to know Him, our life will be a life of continual obedience through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God. Sin will become hateful to us and that's the fact so this last one I want to read to you this is Christ's object lessons page 312 by his perfect obedience he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments question don't answer out loud because I don't want to out you do you believe that By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. Now, if I said, listen, I had the stroke of genius last night. I wrote these words down. Hey, what do you think? You'd be at license to disagree with me. But if you disagree with this, I mean, you may. But you're going to have to have a talk to the Holy Spirit about that because he inspired the writing of those words. This is a promise. And the wonder of it is, if you, if you struggle to believe that, if you say, oh, man, I don't, that's not my experience. Well, praise the Lord. It's about to be your experience. It may be your experience because God will do in you what you could never even imagine doing yourself. This is the promise. The gospel contemplates our complete recovery from the power of Satan. Amazing. God will make you new. Bible says, and you creature, all things pass away, all things become new. When we submit ourselves to Christ... The heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. Our thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. Somebody ought to say praise the Lord. Beautiful. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. This is what God can do. He pledges to do. He promises to do along the way. We need to put ourselves where we can grow. Continue to receive the Spirit of God every day. Yield and yield again and yield again. And if you get knocked down, don't let go of the hand of Jesus. He will lift you up. Peter was walking on water. You never know that. He went into the water. Lord, save me. Three words. 
He was, he didn't say, oh, look, I got to quit. I sunk into the water. He even went on to do worse when he was there. I don't even know the man. He was saying, oh, it was better when I sunk into the water. This is worse. And Jesus said, man, I've got plans for you. Go ahead and write two books of the Bible. Amazing. John Mark, I don't want to fool with him. He's a flake. Turned around and wrote a gospel. So you must not let your failing come between you and victory in Jesus. You mustn't. Because God won't let that happen if you don't want it to happen. We grow, we grow, we grow. And you just keep on growing. How much growth? Keep on growing. Redwood trees out there have been growing for hundreds of years. They never said, shall we quit? Just kept on growing. And you just grow. Let God do in you what he wants to do. He wants to do amazing things. It's time to quit. We're not quitting. Don't go yet. Two things to tell you. One is this. In 2007, a woman named Adriana Pertillo was running the Chicago Marathon. She was leading the Chicago Marathon. With a couple of hundred meters to go, she was in front and she couldn't be beaten. The commentators were saying, one day when she is older, she'll be able to look back and be able to tell her children she won the Chicago Marathon. It was her first ever marathon. First ever. And the Chicago Marathon is one of what they call the, the six major marathons. It's a big one. And so there she was, Adriana Pertia, running to the finish line. Oh, what a great feeling to be winning a marathon. So it's interesting if you watch the video of this. As she's running towards the finish line, she's high-fiving people in the stands. Actually, left hand. She's running this way, left hand. She's high-fiving. Oh, big crowds, way cheering. High-fiving. Yeah, big smile. The favorites, most of them had dropped out, but one had not. Her name was Buhane Adere from Ethiopia. In Chicago, you round a bend, one last bend. It's like a 90-degree turn, and you run down. I should know the name of the street, but I don't, towards the finish line. And Miss Pertia was on her way running towards the finish line. You know, she made a mistake. Two things. She never bothered to look over her shoulder to see if anybody was coming. And two, she's busy high-fiving. Hey, save the high-fiving for afterwards. When you got 250 meters to go in a marathon, run them like your life depends on them, particularly when you're about to win the thing. You don't ease up, start looking around, enjoying the crowd. High five. Isn't this fun? As they look up the road, you see Pertia running. She's miles in front, I mean, figurative miles in front. And then you see this ominous figure, tall, rangy figure of Buhane Adere, rounds the bend. Now, she's so far back. But Pertia is jogging. And Buhane Adere is sprinting. She has run 26 miles and over the last point two, she turns on the afterburners and runs her heart out. Now the commentators are saying, oh, I wonder if she doesn't know she's coming. Oh, no, she might lose this. Oh, no. And then you see the aerial shot as Adere runs past Pertia. She's on the other side of the street. I reckon she didn't want her to hear her footsteps. And then you see Ms. Pertia look over. She speeds up and does her very, it's too late. Uh, the Ethiopian woman run, won the marathon by three seconds, which after 26.2 miles is not far. Three seconds is a million miles over 200 meters, but not over a marathon. 
three seconds. She never did win a marathon. And she came second and not first, not because she wasn't good enough, but because she lost her focus. Listen, you don't want to be elated, nor do you want to be depressed. You don't want your sin to discourage you. You don't want your victories to deceive you. What you want to do is focus on Jesus because by beholding, you must be changed. There's no other way around this. By beholding, you will be changed. It is God's will that we, each of us, experience transformation. You can instead be conformed to this world. That's the easiest thing in the world. But God has called you to be different. He's called you to be victorious. He's called you to show forth the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. I would encourage you to commit yourself to surrender, daily surrender, to grow in the grace of God, to be honest with yourself, to appeal to God to work in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Because I think this is the time. God is calling people from around the world right now to stand up and step forward and be used to show the universe what the grace of God can do in the life of a sinner. God believes in transformation and He will work that work in your life if you will allow Him to do so. We'll pray in a moment. but Because I'm able to, I will remind you while I have the opportunity. October 19, it is written, begins a, a revival series called Grounded. It is a revival series in as much as church members will be encouraged in their faith and their roots will go down deeper. It is an evangelistic outreach opportunity in that if you invite friends or contacts or people from the community, they will be blessed and encouraged and they will want to study the Bible more and we will extend Bible study opportunities to them. So I'd encourage you to use this evangelistically. Watch on itiswritten.tv, our channel. Uh, you can watch on 3ABN as well, or be part of it. Host it in your home, host it at church. Do something to reach out to somebody. Four nights, five messages, powerful stuff. Someone's life is going to be changed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we can talk about transformation until the cows come home. We want to experience it. Friend, I want you to enter into something with me here. Is there a part of your experience that you really need Jesus to remake? I mean, I know something's going right. You hear it ASI. So on some level, you're following the leading of the Spirit of God. Uh, you're active in your local church. You're involved in ministry. Oh, good. Like, really good. But I wonder if there's something, and, and, and only you know this, but something that you can bring to God right now and say, no more, I want you to transform this. It might be a besetting sin. It might be an unfortunate habit. A, 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 you fall into a certain groove and you just got to be extricated, rescued from that. It might be the way you relax, uh, react to, relate to a certain individual. It might be how you are under pressure. I don't know. There's something that you can bring to Jesus right now and say, Lord, please transform me. Get rid of this and make me more like Jesus.
Let me shine with greater brightness and clarity to the people around me, not for me, but for you, not for my glory, but for your own. So, Lord, as we yield to you now, we are thankful that you are able. We remember Jude wrote, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. We know that you can enable us to live a life of victory and demonstrate and manifest the character of Jesus Christ. Lord, keep us steadfast. Where we're up and down, smooth that out. But even in the ups and downs, don't let our faith waver even a moment. Grant us grace to look ever to Jesus and believe that he will carry us through. We thank you and love you. Dismiss us now with your blessing, we pray. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.